Welcome to episode 235 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today Harini Nagendra, whose debut crime fiction novel, The Bangalore Detectives Club, which was published earlier this month by Pegasus Grimes, joins me from Bangalore, India, which reminds me how gobsmacked I am by technology. Welcome, Harini, and thank you for taking the time to talk to Speaking of Mysteries. Thank you, Nancy. It's such fun to be here. Uh, maybe I should have been more formal in your introduction. Welcome, Dr. Harini Nagendra, Director of Research at Azam Pemji and Premji University. Please correct me if I mispronounce anything. Whose Wikipedia bio introduction reads: An Indian eco- ecologist who uses satellite remote sensing, coupled with field studies of biodiversity archival research, institutional analysis, and community interviews to examine the factors shaping the social, ecological sustainability of forests and cities in the south of the Asian continent. Uh, To that, I guess we can add crime fiction author. (laughs) Yes, you can, as of now. As of now. So the Bangalore Detectives Club takes place in 1921, so about 100 years ago. Uh, it's post-World War I Bangalore as the, as the English rule or the Raj is about to wind down, even though both sides probably don't realize it at that moment. But the very air I felt in your book is shimmering with change. And that state is distilled in your main character, Kaveri Murthy. So, or please correct me if I'm mispronouncing, but tell us about her. Sure. And it's, so it, you're getting it almost right, but it's Kaveri. It's not Kaveri, but it's Kaveri. And okay. uh, yes. And for me, she's a fascinating character. She sort of dropped into my head one day in 2007. I had no plans of writing a mystery book. I was doing research on Bangalore's history, but more from the ecological standpoint. Um, then she popped into my head and sort of almost demanded. She was an arresting character and asked me to write about her. And uh, I did. So she's 19. Uh, in those days in India, women got married very early as they did in many parts of the world. And um, so I pushed that as much, you know, normally. So for instance, my husband, sorry, my, my, my father's sister and my grandmother got married very young, my father's mother. So 13. And, uh, you know, that, which was common in those days. Not My father was born in 1930. His uh, sister was born in 1926. So not, not, not that far removed from Kaveri. But I didn't want her to be married at 12 or 13 because it's you know, contemporary. We, we, it's disturbing, right, to us to write like that. So I had her marry at 16, but also, as was common in those days, not move to live with her husband till she was 19. So that was also common. When you got married very young, often your parents didn't send you till, till you were older. So you were a married woman, but still living with your parents and life continued unchanged. So that's what's happened to her. And just before the book begins, she's 19. She's moved from her home city of Mysore where she had a relatively free life till she got married. She swims, she does mathematics, she wants to explore things. She's not learned cooking, she's not a traditional bride. And she gets married into this wealthy family where her father-in-law recently passed away. He was a big supporter of women's rights, but he's no longer there. Her mother-in-law believes that too much studying makes a woman's brains go soft. She hasn't yet got to know her husband because it's an arranged marriage. And he's a young up and coming doctor who frankly hasn't paid too much attention to her at the start of the book because he didn't want to get married. 
he was busy working and studying and his parents forced him so he got married and he's forgotten about his wife so now that it's it's sort of the start of their relationship where she starts exploring things gets tangled in a murder and he to his first his shock and then his surprise and then he's very pleased to find his wife is actually a strong independent woman with a mind of her own and then becomes one of her strongest supporters well i i was going to mention that you know in in a way uh Kavari is blessed with an enlightened husband. His name is Rama. Uh, and as you mentioned, her mother-in-law, not so much. You know, she does tell her that her brains are going to turn to mush. And I guess that this is uh, not uncommon in uh, the way marriages are structured in, in India. I mean, maybe around the world where uh, the sons are the shining lights of the mother's lives. Right. And the daughter-in-law is uh, a little more than an intrusion at, at worst, and at best going to be the mother of grandchildren. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. so, I mean, that was, I, I thought that was a nice touch. And I thought that um, Rama was another indication of how things were changing because I think the world changed a great deal in post-World War I. Exactly. The world. The mother-in-law is is there in the beginning, and she's she's pretty annoying. But she goes off to visit her sister. The English, uh, on the other hand, uh, the Raj are are simply maddening, and that's at least that's the way it it was to me, and sort of the arrogance. So, can we talk a little bit about? Um, obviously, Rama and Kaveri are very they're they have established themselves in society. They're a doctor and a doctor's, a highly educated doctor's wife. She reads, she writes, she does mathematics. Talk about that kind of roiling conflict between the two parts of Bangalore society at that point. Yeah, Bangalore was a very unusual um, British city because, well, to begin with, it was part of Mysore state. Mysore state was a princely state. So there was a Maharaja. So um, though the British presence was strong and felt and the Maharaja did not have complete control, he was sort of a buffer between the British and the Indian uh, population. But Bangalore itself was an unusual city because there was the what they called the native part of the city where the Indians lived, which was controlled and administratively managed by the Maharaja through his Diwan or the Prime Minister. And then there was a British part of the city, which is the cantonment, which was controlled by the military. And, and Bowring Hospital, where Ramu works, has a large Indian contingent of doctors, but the main uh, doctor in charge is uh, a British doctor. Right? And so they're, they're always having to navigate these worlds of living with the British and having to make peace with them while in, at heart being sympathetic to the nationalist movement, which is not yet the freedom movement, but is gathering struggle to become the freedom movement. As you said, you know, they, they're at the cusp of change, but they don't know that they're at the cusp of change. And so there's a lot of things that they have to contend with. For instance, the British tendency to mispronounce names or to change people's names if they don't know how to pronounce them or change place names if they don't know how to pronounce them, right? Or their tendency to think that culture lies with them and the Indians are not as a-cultured or, you know, to, to pass snide comments but ex expect that people will accept them. So there's all of this in the backdrop and there are grumbles of dissatisfaction that are growing. For instance, there is... Um, civil disobedience movement, so stop work for a few days, uh, that, that call has been made. And so there are some Indians who work with the British and are very great sympathizers of the British as there were in colonial places across 
the world. And so they don't want their staff to go on strike. But there are some others like Rahul who are very supportive. He can't himself go on strike, for instance, because he that's his job and he can't afford to lose his job. But he'll do whatever he can to help or at least not stand in the way of others who can actually go on strike. But in your book, uh, Mrs. Roberts, the wife of the British uh, doctor who's in charge of the hospital, uh, just picks names out of the air for her, for the, for the women that work for her. And so there's Mary and, you know, Alice and, and it's, it's, it's just, well, uh, it's rude. I was so attracted to your book and so happy that you reached out to me because I think one of the wonders of crime fiction is that while crime is both uh, you know, universal and timeless. This story is a fantastic way to make a faraway time and place, at least a faraway place for many of us, come alive and teach us along the way. And this is especially true for readers in North America. So I want I want you to maybe talk a little bit about the universality of your story, that there is a death at a country club and, um, Kavari witnesses it and her struggle to uh, make people listen and, 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 and yet tell us the story of what the time and the place was. Thank you. That is, I, so I, I was always curious about how this story would resonate with an audience outside because I'm writing from Bangalore. I'm from Bangalore. I sort of, and because of my research, very steeped in, old Bangalore as well as new Bangalore, right? And I always wondered about how that would come across to outside people. So it's very nice to hear this. But Bangalore itself, there was a lot going on at that time, but yet I myself, so my favorite mysteries uh, growing up were Agatha Christie's. And that whole golden age setting, you know, so it's it sort of natural to have, I guess, a country club where the first murder takes place. But what I also, I mean, and um, one of the things we're doing now, I think, in crime writing, which we di they didn't in the golden age, is to challenge the societal structures of post times, right? Because there it was very clear, you know, the detective was always someone from the upper classes and uh, the would, who would have uh, been, I don't know, usually often uh, families would have rejected that person because they choose to join the police. So that was frowned upon. But then when they came to investigate murders, the whoever the uh, noble family was that they were investigating would welcome them gladly saying, you know, at least you're not a boorish policeman from the lower class. <laughs> so there's that class distinction, which is very much approved, whether in Agatha Christie, much more so in um, Dorothy Sayers, you know, very clear, Neomash, the, the whole class structure was so dominant. And so what I wanted was the golden age mystery, but I wanted someone to question these structures. And so Kaveri does that, her friendships with women cut across caste and class. And yet she's in a society where caste and class are very dominant organizing principles, both in her house and outside her house. So she's constantly challenging those. She finds them abhorrent, gender, you know, women's places. So she doesn't believe that anyone has their place, which is societally predefined. And one of the reasons she gets actually dragged into the solving the murder, her personal motivation is that someone from the quote unquote lower classes suspected of the murder, unfairly so. And so uh, she feels unfairly so. So she gets dragged in by trying to protect that person and therefore to solve the mystery. And that's what I wanted to do, to have the golden age setting in some sense and with Bangalore and uh, with the British. And you know the Indian class system was very similar to the British class system in the sense of there were the people who were allowed to be intellectual, who had their place in society, who were believed to be cultured people. 
And then the rest was supposed to be agricultured, boorish, and uh, prone to crime, and slovenly, and sloppy, and uh, you know, the mentally weak and deficient, and all of those those horrible epithets that we put on people that we don't understand. And so I wanted to have that and have her question this. So I guess that's where the setting came. Well, the club is very interesting because this is not the English club where uh, Ram, Ram and, and Kavari would not be allowed to go. This is a hybrid club that's been created. So as you said, the upper classes of both uh, the English and the Indian societies can, can I don't know if mix is the right word, but they can socialize together. Yeah. And, and I found that interesting, and I'm sure that that existed because, as you said, you, you are steeped in the history of Bangalore. So it was a real place. There was the Century Club. It was a former Diwan or Prime Minister of Bangalore called uh, Sir M. S. Viswaraya. And there was the Bangalore United Services Club, which is now the Bangalore Club. Um, obviously, today it's completely Indian in terms of the membership, but it was then completely European. And he was very annoyed with this. So he said, you know, we need to come together and create a club where Indians of um, the highest echelons, or the quote-unquote again, the, yeah, the right kind of Indians, the right kind of people <laughs> could socialize. So they have that. Yeah. And Ramu's father, I just, you know, obviously that part is fiction, but he's one of the founding members. And so Ramu inherits his place. But Ramu, unlike his father, is uncomfortable with the fact that certain kinds of people only can come to this club and certain others can't. Well, like I said, the universality of the story, it's, it's <laughs> happens. I think it's just part of the human condition. But if I were to, you know, sometimes when I read these books, I read a lot of crime fiction. I try to think about the subtext of a book. And <clears throat> in the Bangalore Detectives Club, it might be underestimate women at your own risk. Because chances are they will surprise you and show you up, uh, as uh, Kavari does to Mr. Ishmael, who is the deputy inspector of the Wilson Gardens Police Station. Uh, although I have to say he's a pretty good sport about it. He's uh, he doesn't he doesn't shut her down, but at the same time he's surprised that she is, as you said, she she is a uh, an advocate for this woman who's been arrested. Uh, Kavari feels unfairly, you know, she, and, and she, she's not going to stop. And Mr. Ishmael even says, I realize you're not going to stop. You're going to keep mm -hmm. going. So talk a little bit about how you built that, uh, those two characters. And the, well, we know how you built the young woman, but how you, how you brought those two together and, and made them go forward. So that's a, my, the way I wrote this book, and actually the way I've written now the sequel, which is now with the editors. Is Hold that, that I, thought, because we're going to talk about that. <laughs> is that I I don't start or I didn't start for both books with, with the characters fleshed out. You know, some people start with this character that I like my character is the store and has this face, likes these colors. I knew the character, but they had to show me what they would do. And so uh, what I had was I had the, you know, I changed multiple versions of the story and the plot. But, and through which the characters develop. But I had, so there was a murder. And it was not this murder, but it was another murder. And there was a policeman. And the policeman was young and stolid and not particularly, you know, bright at solving murders. So he sat down and he kept writing the wrong things down. 
and i thought that would be a funny scene but what happened was he was boring and he was boring me as i was writing it so it mel came and took over from the policeman and he was like no i so this man just came in and he we just jumped onto the page and then he took over and the policeman left and ismail i did not plan for the policeman for a policeman to have such a major role in the story of course once he was there it made sense because if he's an intelligent man then he's going to have this dynamic and um when kaveri actually speaks to him for the first time ismail's lips twitch when he looks at her because she starts reminding him of his daughter and his younger daughter was married as a very feisty young woman and um, you know again very rebellious she studies she's got married early but she's continues studying he's extraordinarily proud of her and so he is very indulgent towards kaveri but as you say he's coming from a very paternalistic indulgent attitude like it's so so sweet what she's doing but he isn't realize how clever she is till she starts to challenge him and surprise him and he's like so he starts to respect her along the way so this is something that happened it, i mean it's almost like the characters had a life of their own a bit to go off the page and certainly ismail was not planned he was not a character i had in mind he just landed up and he took over part of the story just one of those wonderful surprises as you're writing when these characters come and sort of tap you on the shoulder and say i'm here yeah i had read about that from some of my favorite authors but you know it was a chill or a thrill however you put it when it happened to me that it's it's interesting for writers uh many writers how they uh, as you said the story just came into your head uh the the character of kavari was insistent you must write my book and as you started to write her book these other uh characters and they're very real they're very real people they may live in your head but they're still real yes i have to ask you a couple of questions about cuisine uh kavari and her husband drink a lot of coffee i drink a lot of coffee i drink a lot of tea i have always associated india with tea i know that maybe that's a limiting on my part for which i apologize but you know you also mentioned that because she's a young bride she's learning to cook and you've been kind enough to include recipes at the end of the book a few of which i think i'm going to try because they look fabulous but can you talk i mean i'm drinking coffee now because although it's 9 o'clock at night where you are it's mm-hmm. still before 9 o'clock in the morning here uh in los angeles and i'm drinking coffee can you talk about coffee in india yeah absolutely so tea as you said was was widespread it was brought in by the british for as plantations as you know as part of their income and the entire expansion of the imperial empire and so they grew a lot of tea in the mountains of north india but then there were the mountains of south india and they tried to grow tea but the climate was too hot and humid even in the mountains because they're not as high mm-hmm. and as north and uh, so they started thinking about coffee and so they actually started growing coffee and some of it was exported but then they realized that they needed more markets very typical colonial expansion right of the <laughs> empire of the of commerce and markets so they actually started creating a market in south india for coffee and uh, selling coffee and propagating it and before that what the indians drank in the morning was uh, a mix of certain herbs so you would have uh, cumin and um, yeah a couple of other things that you would actually boil in water and strain that out and drink that in the morning and that's what many traditional homes still do even now with jaggery not with sugar so they brought in coffee and then coffee with uh, milk and sugar and chikori so because to satisfy the indian bitter taste because that, that was what indians drank so our coffee like the new orleans coffee always had chikori mixed with it and even now in bangalore if you buy your coffee it's going the the 
it is quote unquote good coffee that many older people will drink will always be the bitter kind. Okay, so coffee was something that was really a manufactured taste, the taste that the British manufactured amongst the Indians, and then they started drinking it. So my father-in-law, who was born in 1930, said that when he grew up, his mother, when the first thing when they got up in the morning, all the children, she would make them drink coffee, and they were little, you know, four, five, six. So this whole idea that coffee is not something you give to the very young had not because it wasn't part of the culture. But you just you drank coffee, you gave your children coffee. You you're professor you do research you're you know you're a doctor for heaven's sakes we should um so i'm in awe of writers uh who who have these jobs big jobs important jobs uh that not only write novels but really really good novels and so i have two questions where when do you find the time and Talk a little bit more about what inspired you to write the story. You 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 talked about how Kavari came to you, but why did she come to you? Why why you? Why did she come to you? <laughs> yeah, so I I have been thinking about that. So one thing is the setting came to me because I was really working on understanding the ecological history of old Bangalore to write a book, and I wrote a book in 2016 called Nature in the City. Bangalore, Bengaluru, as it's called in uh, locally, Bengaluru in the past, present, and future. So it's it's an ecological history of Bangalore. And I was looking at all these old archival documents, and there were these fascinating stories that made Bangalore just come alive. But they had nothing to do with the ecology of the city. And so I suppose that was very much the city as a setting, and really the setting as a character was very much alive in my head. But I also think one of the things I've been very fascinated with from when I was a child is hearing these stories of strong women. So my mother has always spoken about her grandmother, who her father, so her, my mother's grandmother's father was a local herbal doctor, and he knew how to you know take local medicines and use them for all kinds of things. And my mother's grandmother had learned all of this from her father. She married a man who was a very influential administrator under the British. He was the superintendent of a jail. In a hill station called Uti, and so she was, you know, and a wife of a very pro- uh, socially very prominent man, a woman from a good, respectable family. But she also served as a midwife because she had all this training. And so my mother says her grandmother would tell her, and this was when her grandmother was very old. Grandfather had passed away, and grandmother was towards the end of her life. She would tell her stories of how there would be a knock on the door at midnight, and a strange man would be outside with a bullock cart, and say, "My wife needs you." And she would just go with a stranger in the middle of the night, God knows where, you know, go to a desolate hut, deliver this baby, dig a pit and bury the afterbirth, and then come back home and have a ritual bath, purify herself, and then go back to being, you know, domestic duties of the day. And her husband, who had otherwise has ex- had expectations of her, she had to learn how to, um, for instance, in those days, women, Indian women, didn't wear a sari with a blouse. But he worked with the British, so she had to cover her chest and be, you know, the Victorian ideas of what was appropriate dress and covering. She had to learn a little bit of English. She had to learn how to use tableware. So he had these expectations. But delivering a child was God's work. So if someone knocked on her door in the middle of the night, she would go. And I guess I had those stories. My uh, father's mother was an extraordinarily strong woman, born in 1908, uh, fought with her father along with her older sister to be allowed to go to school and study. So all of these stories, my husband's aunt used to go swimming in a sari. Some of the women I, I uh, documented for my Bangalore research, uh, my friend's aunt, uh, my friend's grandmother fought to save a park in Bangalore. She was, her husband is, had passed away. So she was a widow with 10 children. 
and she raised children single handedly she had no domestic help she did all the work again respectable women and all of that so she would go to government offices to agitate about saving the park taking a child of her own because a woman with a child is okay and if she didn't have a child of her own around she would take a neighbor's child of her respectability you know so I was fascinated by these women who stayed within the bounds of what was societally respectable but somehow managed to push boundaries still and still do what they wanted to and i asked my friend's grandmother i said i have 10 children i have one child managing house and work and writing is 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 difficult and you have 10 and and i have help she so and what she told me stayed with me she said if you really want to do something you'll always find a way and so i was curious about these women who always found a way and so i i'm guessing that was in my mind when i wrote kaveri so it both in it both informed your character and you you found a way yeah <laughs> and your character found a way um so i have a feeling that we haven't heard the last of kavari and rama you you hinted at that uh especially in light of your intriguing and rather mysterious prologue to this book where you've got a man and i was so fascinated from the city of buttermilk uh it comes in as reading the story that we read in the bangalore detectives club in a journal so can you tell us what's next i'd love to so um i am fortunate enough that my debut book was actually taken as a three book contract because i always wanted there's so much richness about kaveri and i just want to showcase her and ramu through many more adventures and so they've taken a three book contract from me which i'm hopeful will become more than three books but we'll have to see if we does like it you know fingers crossed but so the second book is murder under the red moon which is about a murder under a red moon which is of course a moon with an eclipse and the that that's all i can say at this point but the manuscript is in and being line edited and copy edited for the final touches as as we speak so next year around this time yes you're going to have kaveri ramu's second adventure well and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you again that would be lovely 